This is uh, Roger Fico, and you listen to the More Than a Club podcast. Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Delay. Welcome back to the More Than a Club podcast, season three, episode 12. I'm your co-host, Bill Leahy, along with Marty Cuprian, who's back after a small sabbatical. Missed you, coach. Welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Having fun being a dad. Life in Philly is a treat uh, with young Jackson. Really looking forward to the high school season. I start at the Haverford School tomorrow. Tryouts Friday, Saturday, Sunday. For the next teams, they start practicing on Tuesday and Thursday of next week. We host the next spring league at the Proving Grounds through May. The NLL and college lacrosse are keeping people busy, so lacrosse season is here. It's a wonderful time of year, and we have an awesome guest tonight. Today, we have a guest who joins us from the world of club lacrosse and whose lacrosse coaching background is beyond reproach. I've known Coach Matt Hogan of Hogan Lacrosse since the early 1990s, and there are a few coaches who I think so highly of. I'm thrilled he is joining us virtually from my dear old state, Maryland. Welcome, Coach, to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm glad to be here. Coach, we've had some incredibly experienced guests on the show these past three years, but my goodness, your resume covers an awful lot. It's an honor to have such a good man and talented individual join us. For those listeners not as fortunate to know you, here we go. Matt Hogan, CEO and founder of Hogan Lax, joined the lacrosse community as an eighth grader in 1974 and has never looked back. Through playing for Hall High School in West Hartford, Connecticut, at the collegiate level for Springfield College, and coaching at the Division I, III high school and youth levels, he has been exposed and enjoyed lacrosse in a variety of atmospheres. 1983, assistant, University of Maryland, NCAA semifinalist. 1984-85, assistant at University of Delaware, NCAA tournament, master's in education. 1986, assistant, University of Maryland. NCAA tournament appearance. 1987 to 88, head coach Clarkson University, ECAC Upstate Champions, ECAC Coach of the Year. 1989 to 2001, assistant coach, United States Naval Academy, associate professor of the Phys Ed Department, in 2000, the NCAA number one ranked defense. 2002, head coach, University of Pennsylvania, led them to their first winning season. In 13 years. 2003 to 2010, head coach and dean of students, St. Mary's Annapolis High School, MIAA and MCLCA Coach of the Year. Matt is married to the former C.C. Sullivan, and they have two children who played lacrosse since they were very young. John played at St. Mary's High School, Deerfield Academy, and at Cornell University. Volunteer coach at Penn State, currently offensive coordinator at Richmond. Maggie played for C.C. Lax, St. Mary's High School, and for Connecticut College. She is currently employed by Stansbury Research in Baltimore. Coach Hogan, it's really an honor to have you with us today. Is it possible? Is there anything we missed? you got a lot of stuff on there. I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to do a lot of different things in my life. You know, I've never had a job for more than 13 years except for Hogan Lax, and uh, it's been very special to be able to do different things, you know, at different schools, different experiences around a bunch of different great leaders, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, a lot to be proud of. 
I know from working with you for a short time that uh, we'll learn a lot tonight. So really looking forward to this conversation. When I look over your resume, Coach, I'm stunned at all your different college stops and in your high school stop at the end. Anything you're most proud of, like a quick glance? Um, I, I, I probably can't narrow it down to one thing. I would say, you know, I took, I traveled an awful lot because of the cross. I, went to Eng- I took teams to England twice for two weeks at a time. Um, I've been to California, I don't know, six times, probably five of those times because of lacrosse. I've been to Texas a bunch because of lacrosse, been to Florida because of lacrosse. So I really traveled because of that. You know, when I, I grew up with a family of eight kids. So dinner out meant my mom went to McDonald's. We ate at a picnic table in the backyard. <laughs> so us traveling was not what we did. Personally, <clears throat> I think the most important thing anyone can do is raise a family. And I'm really proud of my kid. I raised two outstanding people who are contributing to society. And I've had a very successful, strong marriage for 35 plus years. I'm really proud of that. Uh, the next thing would probably be, you know, I, I, I was not a great high school student. I'm not sure I was a great college student either. Um, but I was a tenured associate professor at the United States Naval Academy. I would love to go you back and show some of my high school, some of my high school teachers that Matt Hogan was a tenured associate professor at the United States Naval Academy. So I'm really, really proud of that. Um, professionally, uh, I think the most important thing, two things I would say is, and I think Billy, Billy, I know you've been around these same, a lot of these same guys is I've been around a lot of coaches who are leaders, uh, who understand, have a great moral compass and understand how to set standards. And it not just goes to your teams, but go to you personally, you know, the guys like Dave Cottle and Bill Tierney and John Donowski and a guy like Dino Matisich who's my coach, who was uh, the head coach at Maryland. When I was there. Bob Schillinglaw. I mean, there's been a ton of guys. So I think that's really special to me. But the most important thing is, and it's I think it's part of the reasons um, Hogan Lacks has had success, is the relationships I have with players. Those are, you guys know as coaches, the, those things are special. And it doesn't matter how long it's been since I've seen them. Um, you see a player and it's just like hugs. I mean, he's back the way it was before. And and I, I know one of the one of the one of the neatest experiences recently, there was a guy, Kevin Mean, who played for us at the Naval Academy. And Kev was not a star midshipman, and he was a bit of a pain in the butt as a player. And uh, his son was trying out for our team. And someone told me his son was coming. I saw Kevin, and Kevin greeted me with open arms, which I was really surprised. And he gave me a big hug, and he whispered in my ear, I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. You know? And Kevin's now a captain in the Navy. Is um, teach at the Navy War College, um, uh, command a ship, and now he's working down in on the cap- on the Capitol Hill. So, so I think the most important things with strong personal relationships that are built and 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 molded and founded through 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 the cross is really special. And hey, one of the things that I'll always remember about you, Coach, is when you moved to Philly and were at Penn. You know, we were just getting started at LaSalle and you would come up and spend time in our school, in the halls with me, meeting our guys. I mean, back then times were different, but not as many coaches came and spent the same genuine amount of time with me and our players, especially when we were getting started. So to me, looking back, it meant a lot. I, I, I remember there was one player that you had who came to Penn. I loved him. And one of the things I always said is I, I want to make sure in recruiting is not just the way we get ourselves a little bit. But recruiting is not just about talent. Recruiting is about a fit. You with me and me with you. 
So I just tell my recruits at Penn all the time is we're going to spend a tremendous amount of time together if you come to school here. You better like me and I better like you or it's not going to be a great experience for either one of us. So I remember that your player, he came for his official visit. I took him, I took him a couple blocks off campus and we went, I had to go shopping for socks. I brought him with me because I wanted to get to know who he was. Yeah, That was Jeff Mills, I think, right? Jeff Mills. I think it was J Jeff Mills. Yeah, great kid. I actually ran into him. He lives in Newtown, Bucks County, where I live. And he grew up there, but I didn't know he'd moved back with his wife and kids. And I see him like at Ace Hardware. He comes up, gives me a big hug. So I hadn't seen him in 15 years. Amazing. What a great kid. Great kid. And it's about getting to know them and, and them getting to know you, too, so that the transfer portal is not filled up with 150 players. Yeah, right. Well, in your resume, what we didn't get to is Hogan Lacrosse. And I know in pre-show you said this could go on for a while. However... Could you walk us through the history of Hogan Lacrosse, how you started? I mean, we're just ahead of the curve in the world of club lacrosse in lots of ways. And here you are today, and it's just booming. And the first tournament we did was Hero up at Haverford School. Remember that. Um, when, I, when I got to Penn, and we did it more as a recruiting thing. I think there were 16, play, 16 teams, mostly high school teams, not many club teams. Um, and then I, I left Penn and came down here. And I started doing some trying to do tournaments down here to try to bridge the gap of the going from college to high school. It took me a couple of years to get off the ground. And, you know, at the success, the, the thing about Hogan Lax is the success was not easy. And you know, a lot of people see it now. I think, holy cow, that's great. Well, our first tournament after Hero, we had eight teams down here. And it doubled in size every year for four straight years and eventually got up to 298 teams. It's now average about 275 teams. And then we slowly built more. Once we felt we got our feet underground, we then added another tournament. So we're up to um, a bunch of different tournaments right now. So we have a total of eight tournaments um, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, we've, we've had some in Williamsburg, Virginia, and that kind of thing. And then the club thing we started when I went to England with a group from an from Anne Arundel County. Um, I loved how the players from all over this county, and this county can be pretty diverse socially and economically, and the players got along great. They loved playing with guys from different parts of the county. And at the same time, you know, I, I felt St. Mary's need a little shot in the arm. So we, we started the club business with two teams basically to try to get me <clears throat> and my staff in front of young players so they want to come and play for St. Mary's. Mm -hmm. And then it just blew up from two teams. Now it's 14 teams here in Annapolis, and we have a relationship with the Richmond Hawks. I don't own that, but there's a relationship with the Richmond Hawks. And they have 14 teams down in Richmond. And then one of the things we enjoy the most right now is actually leave on Wednesday teams from all over the Northeast come to Florida for a week at a time and participate in our team training down there. And it's, it's a, uh, as I tell you, I run, I run my business from a golf cart for, for a month. It's really nice. Where does the relationship with the Chesapeake Bayhawks come in? So <clears throat> the Chesapeake Bayhawks, um, they are now what's called legendary sports group. And they are, are my 50, 50 partners with Hogan Lax in Naptown challenge. 
originally, um, Brendan Kelly owns the Chesapeake Bay Hawks and Dave Cotter, who was, has been the general manager, the head coach president. He cooked both of them coached teams in the, with the Annapolis Hawks and both of them in the, when they got involved, really pushed me to do more and do a better job with the club and really made us stronger. Let's stay with Coach Cottle just for a little bit. My coach, fascinating guy, maybe the best X and O coach I've ever been around. I learned more from him being on the bench at Loyola than I ever did playing. Thoughts when I say Dave Cottle, not only your relationship, but him as a coach. Um, so Dave and I have, have had a very good relationship ever since I met him back in 1983. Um, you know, twice I talked about going to coach with him at, at Loyola. I used to love working his, his camps. He let me, any camp he had, he always called me and asked me to work. And um, we've always had a very strong relationship. And then when he was going to leave the University of Maryland, he and I were actually competing against each other during a tournament on the Eastern Shore in Queen Anne's County. And I don't know who figured it out. I think we both figured at the same time. So we called each other. And um, we said, let's not compete. Let's do it together. So we became partners in Bay Bridge Brawl, and then we added Fall Brawl together. So Dave and I were partners in that, and recently I've, I've uh, bought him out of that partnership. And then he w- and then his son Sean was an eighth grader the year Dave left St. Mary's, and and and, sh- and Dave coached that team. And you're talking about learning a lot. I mean, I, I've been coaching for 25 years at that time spending time with him and going to the, I never forget. So we, we didn't, the deal was we didn't pay Dave when he coached. He didn't want to get paid. He would, he would not take money from me, but I had to feed him after all practices. <laughs> That's great. So when we used to go to different restaurants and he would tear up, you know, cocktail napkins, teaching me stuff. And then after about a month or two, my wife at that time was doing our books. She's upstairs in, in the house and she yells down, <laughs> What are all these bills for, for the steakhouse? And I don't know that we feed coach Cottle. She goes, why? So we don't pay him. She yelled down, start paying them. It'll be cheaper. <laughs> so it, we had great time. He is, he is uh, ridiculous with the X's and O's and what he can see. I watched film with him of a game. He hardly touches the remote control. Like I'm stopping and starting and stopping and starting and trying to team. He doesn't need it. He just watches it. He gets it down in Florida. He works. He comes down and, and um, helps coach. We have what's called coaches coach in Florida. Jim Stagnita comes down. Hires, hire uh, Jess Osire from uh, Baltimore to come down and myself and different people. And they can work with the teams if, if they, if the teams want us to coach Cottle can watch a team for 15, 20 minutes and say, they should be playing defense this way. They should be playing offense this way. This guy is not in the right spot. This guy should be dodged from here. This guy should be doing that. And he has this way of, of communicating that to the coaches. You know, when, when I think when coach coached you, Billy, between coach, coaching you and now, he has, he's, he softened a little bit in his approach and delivery, you know? I would and, think so. Right. <laughs> and and I, he, he does such a wonderful job in telling coaches what they need to do without telling them you need to do this. You know, he does it in a way that they understand and they and they and they 
and he's not insulting with them at all. He's not aggressive with them. He just communicates it in a way, in a manner, in a way that is, um, I, have, I haven't witnessed before. He does a fantastic job with it. He does a fantastic job with it. And the number of former players that have gone on to coach at the highest levels, high school or college, under his former leadership is just staggering. We, I mean, we couldn't even list them all. You know, no, you could. And, 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 you know, he coached with our 2022 team the past two summers. And Tom Ripley's the head coach for that, has, has done a remarkable job with that team. He's coached them since third grade. And um, he, 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 he's the same thing. He cannot, he cannot get over um, not only the X's and O's, but the motivation for guys. How he can motivate guys now that to a level that I, I haven't seen. And he develops relationships. Like he still texts most of the players he's coached, whether 2019-15 team or the 2022 team, he texts those guys. He talks to those guys. And, and when those guys meet with him, there's some reverence there. And he's spot. And he's not a cookie cutter guy. He doesn't just say the same thing to everybody. He knows what motivates each individual. And he can address that motivation for each player in a different manner. It's, it's special. Maybe next year, Coach Coop, Dave Cottle, season four. What do you think? <laughs> Sounds like he's got the resume. You know, he's got enough references here, right, Matt? He, he would be awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, really cool just to hear about your past and uh, really the growth of Hogan, too. So let's move on to our hot topics. The first one really addressed for our parents out there. We call it our youth sports hot topic uh, for both you and Bill. Uh, I think you have interesting perspectives, you know, having played at the highest level, coached for a while, but also being parents and normal people. Um, so share with us a little bit more about your perspective as a parent, a sports parent, um, and really any tips for parents listening. Yeah, I, I um, my mom, one time I was at the beach and my mom sort of laughed because she was surprised me talking to my brothers about coaching, how often I reflected back on my parents' parenting and dealing with players. And um, she was very, she was very, I think she was very pleased with it. But you as a parent need to really understand the impact you have on, on your young, on your young, your, your children. And the, 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 the things that you say all the time, they're listening. And I'm sure, you know, I, I've had my kids come back and go, remember when you said this to me? I know. And they go, my God, it really impacted me. And those times we sat across the table and I was given this lecture that I thought was all worldly. They, they don't remember that at all. So I think as a parent of, a, of you know, my, my kids are now 28 and 30. And I can say some of the, the, and I give a lot of my parents my club advice from my, from my personal experience. You know, as a guy who coached an awful lot of lacrosse, I never once in my kid's career, both of them, Maggie and John, did I ever yell out to them when they were playing since they were in kindergarten one time. And, and it was a funny story. So I'm uh, Standing up, my wife sitting in a blanket right next to me. And my son played soccer a lot. And he was becoming to me, he's, you know, this, this little cross guy, he's becoming a soccer guy, you know, which I didn't really like. And um, he got hit in the cross game and he didn't get hit hard, but he laid and stayed on the ground. 
Now, I was not happy with that. And I yelled out, get up. And my wife's head snapped around and looked at me like, be quiet. And I realized that, that she was right. I just, I just, I never, I never talked to them again, yelled to them in the field. The other one is that when they came off the field, all I ever asked them was, Jeff Hunt, that's it. If they wanted to ask me a question about what, how the game went or how they played and that kind of stuff, I would answer it. Um, I did sometimes, sometimes when they asked a question, I would say, are you prepared to hear what I think? Because I don't think you're going to agree with what I say. And um, I, I, as a coach, I always sided with the coach. I never, never sided with, with my children that, and I never in, with my children was critical of an official um, and that kind of stuff. It just, I just, that was not, that was not behavior. I wanted my kids to have. Um, I can remember some experience I had, you know, I went to watch my, my, uh, my son played club for us in seventh and eighth grade. And we did not have high school teams. He played for the club up in Baltimore. And, um, I could got, I got the very few of the, I got, there's only tournament that summer. And he probably played a total of 30 seconds. That's it. And, um, my wife's upset. I go, don't say, don't you, don't you say a word. So we got in the car and went down and went down to the inner Harbor to have dinner and he's not happy, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to bring anything up to him. If he's got an issue with what's going on, he needs to come to me. He needs to come to us. And after dinner, he said, I didn't play very much. I said, it's true. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I think you got to get better. Right? If the coaches don't think you're good enough to play, then they don't think you're as good as the other guys on the team. So the only way you can fix that is for you to get better. And then, and then and he, we talked about, I said, what are you going to do? So he started a regiment of throwing a ball against our pitch back in our, in our backyard every single day. He started shooting down at Broadneck High School every single day. So I was not going to tell the coaches they were wrong not playing him. I didn't understand why they didn't. I think, I think they, there's no reason they didn't play him, but, but I'm not going to tell him the coaches are wrong. He, he needs to get better. Um, you know, I think as a parent, as a coach, very often, even, my, even when my kids were little, if the parents didn't like the coach, they would come to me to try to get me to side with them against the coach. I remember when John was in second grade, my wife and I were sitting in the car and the moms were coming over and go, I'm after my wife, I go, oh no, this can't be good. And she came over and said, hey, Matt, what position do you think John should play? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I think he should play attack, not midfield. And I said, well, I think he should play whatever position the coach tells him to play. And that's the approach every parent should have with their child. They should play whatever position the coach tells them to play. And it may, they may move them and it may not work, but teach your child to be adaptive at, especially at what age are you a midfielder or attack? Right. I mean, Billy, you've coached kids who have gone up to college. Marty, you have a club level. And, and right now I'm, I'm hearing the, the guys in, co in, in college are just recruiting offensive players. Then they'll decide, they'll decide what, what, what they are. Who, did, who knows when you may move? Who's the guy that's coaching at um, 
Navy right now. He started Hofstra as an attackman, turned into an all-American defenseman. So who knows what position you are? Let, let, the coach, let the coach make those decisions rather than you make those decisions, even if you have a 25 more years experience than, than the coach does. Yeah, you, you do my heart good. I've told that story so many times, Coach, where yeah. <laughs> I had this player who, Shane, he went off to, to Denver, but he was a, he was a D-Mitty for us. Well, hold on, Coach. First, you have the story where your daughter's <laughs> running up the sidelines and Bill's coaching her, and his daughter says, hey, Dad, you know, you do, you do dad things and let me play, but kind of shut up. And the whole sideline goes, ooh. So, <laughs> so not to steal your thunder there, but as you were telling your story, Coach Hogan, I'm like, yep, uh, Coach Hitley, he tells that one every two episodes. And uh, a lot of our parents in our club have learned from that. So um, more quiet and supportive on the sideline. Yeah. And Sorry, Shane Osborne. Well, my Shane story. So Tier Coach Tierney comes and says, you know, he, we're looking at him and this young man from St. Augustine, but our, your guy can play three different spots. He's a D-Midi when he started as a sophomore, he's an, and then he moved to O-Midi, and then he played some attack for you. What's the story? I said, well, we got a guy hurt, and I looked at my other midfielders, and I said, can anybody play attack? And they all stared at me, and the one guy says, well, you know, I'm a right-handed, I'm a right-handed midi. And I'm like, yeah, I got 19 of them. Just get in line. Can anybody else just play attack? And Shane raises his hand and said, I'll give it a shot. Next thing you know, he gets in, you know, for a month until the other guy's injured and comes back. And here it is two years later with Coach Tierney saying, we, we got a three-for-one deal right there. I'll decide what I want to do with him. But he's a D-Midi. He's an O-Midi. He's an attackman for you. I love that. I can, get, I can get one kid who can do three things versus just one guy from San Augustine who's an attackman. 100%. And I think that is the old, goes back to the old thing, is that parents don't want their children to be uncomfortable. In my opinion, it's the coach's job to make players uncomfortable so they become comfortable. And through that is the most personal growth is having to attack and do things that are uncomfortable for you. Yeah, I just finished a parenting book by Professor Yale, and she was saying it was her job in raising her kids to place reasonable challenges in front of her kids so that they got tougher and stronger for this hard world. It wasn't to coddle them and always make them feel better. It was to say, here's a challenge. Right. Another hour on the piano or whatever it was, because she saw them as create as creating obstacles to overcome with strength. And my dad used to always say, if you want to build self-esteem in a child, give them give them something they can accomplish. Nice. All right. Moving on, coach, to my favorite section, which is the X and O's. And with you, we could do this all day long. But I thought it would be fun since you you give so many good lectures, especially at conventions. We'll put up your um, website where folks can see some of your talks to go over a couple youth drills that we could kind of explain in an audio fashion to our listeners. So how about we start with the coddle over the shoulder drill? So this is a drill Dave Coddle taught to our team, and he, and he used it at the University of Maryland. And I'm using it more and more with my teams. I think the biggest weakness of, of all teams is the amount of time they spend on clearing. And we're trying to spend, we're trying to our players, our coaches, I want you working on clearing before you're working on six on six. Because a lot of the guys want to show their, their, their moxie with what they can do six on six. Guys, you can't clear the ball. You're not going to play a whole lot of six on six. So this is a drill where you put it, and, and, and you can change the, the length of this depending upon the size of the players. If they're high school, maybe even eighth grade, you put a goalie in each goal and they have balls. And then you have two lines. We have a line we call the Rido line. It goes to the middle of one goal 
to the middle of the other goal. It's an imaginary line. So on the restraint line at one end, the midline and the restraint line at the other end, we have a, a line on each side of the rider line on the restraining, on the midline, on the restraint line. And the first player in line is facing the sideline. There's only like three yards between those, cone, those lines. So let's say the goalies pick the ball up. When I blow the whistle, both goalies and throw it to their right. So the player that the player the restraining line close to the goalie is breaking out perpendicular to the sideline along the restraining line over his shoulder. So the goalie's thrown to his right, that player would be catching the ball over his right shoulder. <clears throat> the player at the midline is running perpendicular to the sideline along the midline and catching it from the player the goalie threw it to. When the guy at the midline catches the ball, he's throwing the ball to the, to the player at the other restraint line. So he catches it over his shoulder, turns to his left, throws it forward. That player turns and throws to his goalie. So you have two balls go at the same time. So in that, that pattern, the ball would be going counterclockwise. We, we don't, I don't let players in almost any of our drills change, change lines anymore because they screw it all up. So we keep the players in the same lines. You can have the players follow the ball if you want to. And then whenever you're ready, blow the whistle and tell the goalies to, to blow the ball the other way. Now everyone's breaking out of their left, over their left shoulder. It's a really good drill. And I think we don't practice over the shoulder enough. And, we, and, and it builds up in that you watch particular youth players, when they break out, they break out upfield. So they're making the pass longer. A 2029 20, goalie can't throw the ball that far. So break to the sideline so your passes are shorter. Yeah, and it's a full field drill, or mostly so. And I love those drills, right? Where you're getting up and down the field. It's realistic. It's how the game is played. And you got to go in both directions. Just a lot of value there. And your attackmen, your defensemen, your middies are all in that, all in that drill. Everyone's in that drill. We'll post this link for our listeners so they can actually visually see your, I think, lecture. You gave it at U.S. Lacrosse, maybe, at the convention? I gave it at U.S. Lacrosse, and that is – and uh, so if you go to hoganlax.com backslash videos, you can search it by me. You can search by content. You can just type in type in uh, coddles over the shoulder, and it may, and it may appear up. All right, you got another one for us? Another youth throw? One more, and this is funny. When I, my, my second year or third year at St. Mary's, I um, asked our coaches – I was speaking at the national convention and I asked my coaches, give me, give, give me the best drill we do that you think we do. And all four of them on the varsity uh, staff gave me this eight lines drill. And I was blown away because I think it's a very simple drill. So this, and, and I don't know why there's only, there's only seven lines, what we call eight lines. I'm not sure why that either, but the goalie has a ball to, let's say the, the to the, when he's backs to the goal, you look at the goal to the left side of the goal. And then you have a midfield line on the other side of the goal or players on the opposite side of the goal. And then the restraining line and restraining line meets the same side of the field, the goal of the line, where the wing restraining line and midline meets, have another line. Then the far restraining line, op opposite the same side the goal he's on, you have a line, so it's restraining line, restraining line. And then the far goal, away from the goalie, you have a line on each side. And the goalie throws the ball to the player on his end of the field that's on the other side of the goal over his shoulder. That player throws it to the restrained line 
restrain line guy that's opposite side of the field. The restrain line, restrain line guy in the same end of the field as goalie throws it to the wing restrain line and the midfield guy who throws it to the restrain line, restrain line guy at the other end of the field. And then that guy throws it across the front of the goal to the player on the far side of the goal. And the player near side of the goal breaks over his shoulder and comes back to the other end of the field, other end of the ball. And what it does is, it's very similar to what you just said earlier, Billy, about it's not very rarely do you in games throw the ball or catch the ball when you're running straight at someone. You're usually at angles or away. Mm-hmm. You're not running on a straight line to each other. So this is catching the ball with all kinds of angles. And um, what we do is when the player catches over the shoulder from the far at the far end, we usually put a goalie at the faceoff X. Guy catches the ball, throws the goalie, goalie throws it back to him. Then the player runs all the way down with the ball started, and you recycle the guys back. And it, it, the players love it. Love it. I love your drills, Coach. I got hooked on Google. I just couldn't stop going through one drill of yours after another. So, Yeah, I was, I was watching your videos and learning from you uh, well before I knew you, certainly. So definitely a great resource for any coaches that are listening. Hoganlax.com slash video has over 240 videos there. So um, tons, of, tons of St. Mary's stuff from back in the day. And then you're, you've done some tremendous work at coaching clinics over the years. And How about uh, the, the music on the ones from St. Mary's time. They're pretty good yeah. music, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So we'll move on. Uh, we'll talk a little culture building. On this show, we've talked a lot about uh, the principles of the New Zealand All Blacks, as well as John Gordon's books including the hard hat, 21 principles of being a good teammate. Let's just start with being a good teammate. What does that look like to you, um, you know, from your playing and coaching days and even with high school or youth current players? You know, it's, it's, um, I was a Dean of students at St. Mary's for 13 years and we had someone come and do some professional development stuff with us. And she talked about how four or five bad students in your class can bring a bunch of students down, right? You got these kids who are above the norm. These kids are below the norm and a lot of kids at the norm. And you add four or five bad students to that list. They pull those norm kids down and you have a, you have a, you have a difficult class. And the same token is you add four or five special kids to that class, how much it really raises the class up. And I think it's the same thing can be said for teams, you know, and that's why um, recruiting in college is so important to get to know the player that Billy talked about earlier. And it's, I think it's important to, for that, for club, club ball too, not to nest. We have not always taken the most talented players on our teams because our coaches or, or we've done our homework finding out that, this person, this player, or this parent is not good for us. They're not a good fit for us. Or we hear that and we love the player. So we have a conversation with the player and or mom and dad before we give them an opportunity to be a part of our team. And if we're going to let you into our family, we want to make sure you're a good fit. And if, and if those, those, so what I'm saying is that, you know, I've, I've been, I've been blessed. You know, I've been, I worked for 13 years at the United States Naval Academy. I was around leaders all day and they freaking kids pushed the crap out of you to be good, you know? And what I learned, one of the things I learned there is 
our captains were rarely the best players. Those guys knew who the leaders were and who would represent them the best in the head coach's office and at a place like that in the dormitory. They selected the best leaders. And I learned from that, from watching who they selected and, and guys that were good players, not, not necessarily great players, but great leaders. Um, I was very fortunate at University of Pennsylvania having great, great players around because those kids all know how to work hard, right? They don't, they don't get to an Ivy school without understanding that, that in order to have success, you have to put some time in. There's work, there's work required for that. Um, and at St. Mary's, you know, I had, you know, we had some up and down years there, but I remember, uh, I think, I think it, the, when we had really great leaders, it really helps you as a coach a lot. But I think the good teammate, and one of the terms we use a lot is celebrate your teammates' success, right? When I see a goal scored and a teammate doesn't join in, I got a problem with that. I don't like, I, I know coaches say, when a goal scored, I want six helmets touching each other. I am never telling them to do that because then the celebration's not real. I want you to go celebrate because you believe in celebrating. And then if you don't, let me correct that. I will never see who that bad teammate is if I tell him he has to go congratulate the guy. He's not congratulating the guy. He's just walking into the freaking huddle and, and, and pumping fists. He, he's not happy. So I don't believe in that. I believe I'll look for that. That's body language. That kind of stuff. I'll look for that. So we want each one to celebrate each other's success. And I think that's, that's really important. I think we all make mistakes on the field, but it's the coach's job to correct them. I was just down in Florida coaching nation's best team down there. I was coaching a bunch of 29s. Boy, I was a little worried about how I was going to handle them, you know, being too aggressive and that kind of stuff. And, yeah, and fifth, um, fifth graders, right? Yeah. I mean, they were young. One of your guys, the goalie was on the team. He's awesome. Yeah. I was going to say, you said goalies can't make that pass. I, I was going to say Riley might be able to, but yeah. do everything. That guy's just, that guy's <laughs> unbelievable. Well, during a game, we were losing, you know, one of our players, got frustrated and fouled. Then another player from the, from the, from the bench tried telling players in the field, they're making mistakes. And um, I quietly talked to the player that, that made the foul. I quietly talked to the kid who coached was coaching rather than playing. And after the game was over, I addressed those two things. And I called those two guys out in front of the team. I don't, I, this whole calling out players for the team. And I'm not calling you out. I'm using this as a learning opportunity for you and for the rest of the team. And I told them, that's never going to happen again on this team, right? We're going to be in situations where things are tough. It's never going to happen again in this team. And what I was most proud of, we lost three more games when we were down there. That They never, they never, they never victored each other, and nobody ever made, made uh, retaliation fouls. So I think that, that those kids can learn. I think, I think body language is something to really watch, and I don't think – you know, being a poor teammate is not always verbal. You know, there was a player years ago, he was talking about that every time a goal was scored, he went to the huddle, he'd go, hey, I was open. Hey, I was open, right? Like, dude, okay, I just scored a goal. Hey, I was open, right? So I think it's also body language. How are they carrying themselves? How are they handling interacts with other guys? 
And I think that's not only to watch for who's a good teammate and who's a bad teammate, but is there something else going on in your team? Is there something else going on you need, you need to watch for? So I think, you know, I, I had, um, I think leaders take care of others. We were, we were in our team training thing, coach Kyle and I both one night, there was a team, um, Princeton day school. And a lot of the schools that come down, they have freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors come down. And uh, almost at the same time, both of us said, we respect the heck out of the Princeton Days upperclassmen because they took care of the freshmen, right? They didn't, they didn't make them uncomfortable. They didn't make them clean up the bus. They didn't make them clean up the trash. They didn't make them, like, I always find that interesting that teams to have the freshmen do all this menial task stuff but they call themselves a family. If it's a family, the newborn gets all the best stuff, right? The new people to the family get taken care of. They don't get crapped on. They get taken care of. That's, that's what good teammates look like is taking care of the guy who doesn't play, taking care of the guy who's new, right? I remember um, Mike Pounds, who's the coach at um, Ridgewood right now. He's a freshman on our lacrosse team at St. At, at Springfield and transferred in mid-year. You know, so CJ Johnson and I, a couple of seniors, let's make sure he goes, let's make sure he knows where we're going out. Let's make sure we sit with him at, at lunch. That's what good leaders do. That's what good teammates do. I, I remember my, one of my favorite years at St. Mary's when we had these three captains, uh, Neil Lunas, Jason Gonis, Neil's a captain at UMBC. Nick was a captain at UMBC and Jason Gonis was a cat. was played at Harvard. And, they loved the younger kids, not just in the lacrosse team, in the hallway. And the, at St. Mary's, the juniors and seniors ate together while the freshmen and sophomores were in class. And it was always a gym class that had to come get water in the cafeteria. Before that time, seniors used to say stupid things to the, to the freshmen that came in from gym class to get a drink of water. Neil used to open the door and hold the door for them and talk to them. How you doing? How's classes? How you, that's with nobody asked him to do that. Neil held the door, wanted to make them feel comfortable. Our practices the day before games that year were 45 minutes long because our captains, who are great leaders and great teammates, took care of their people. And so that they and and they, but they also held them accountable so that we want to go over how we're going to clear against this team. They all got it already. So I think the most important thing for a good teammate is take care of your teammates, right? That there's nothing that the mission, Eric Capitula from the program talks, the mission is most important, but good teammates take care of their teammates. Great stuff, coach. You know, I enjoyed speaking with you and catching, catching up in pre-show earlier in the week. And you said that the real challenge of commitment, and I love that word. And you went on for a while about commitment and commitment kind of back in our time playing, our time coaching, commitment versus today. Could you walk me through that a little bit? Let's go back to our conversation a couple of days ago. I, I, and this is something that, that um, you know, I think, don't get me wrong, I love club sports. I think club sports are good. I, I, I think all that might be, it'd be kind of hypocritical for me to say they're not good, but they're good if they're run the right way. And, and so are youth sports, so are high school sports, so are college sports. But one of the things you hear from parents is the reason they want their children to play sports 
is for the characteristics that, that, that are built in their children. Commitment, teamwork, sacrifice, um, all that kind of stuff. I don't think we're in this world now where I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do, how I want to do it. And we call that the culture of me. And we're trying to build in whatever program we've been in, the culture of we. And it's a great challenge. Um, and, and, if you, and if you aren't, so commitment is not going to be instilled in your child if he's not committed. So a couple of years ago, we had a parent who had his son in quarterback, getting quarterback lessons two days a week. He was playing spring soccer and he's playing for two lacrosse teams and he never came to practices, but he was always available for games and he didn't play. He didn't play him in games. And so the father called me, he was upset about it. And I said, we told you, first of all, we told you early on, if you don't come to practices, you're not playing in games. He goes, I understand, but this, these are the things my son's doing. I said, I'm not telling you you can't do those things. But what I am telling you is if you do those things, you mispractice, you're not playing. So you choose what you want to do. That father was not allowing his son to be committed, in my opinion, to be a committed to, definitely was not committed to us. I don't know if he's be able to be committed to both soccer teams. He was definitely committed to the quarterback camp in football because he went to, he went to every session those had. So what they're building is this, and the characteristic they're building is that the son gets to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it, and he can miss things and still be rewarded. He's going to get smacked in the face when he gets into the real world. So I don't think that's helping any child build a level of commitment. And I think that's where we talk about the, my, my greatest advice to the parents nowadays is make sure your child is doing something and committed to it. If the, if the, the, that's a characteristic that really helps you grow to be a good young person, a good adult, is being committed to something. And there's, you know, you want to play piano, you want to play the saxophone, you want to do all this stuff, I'm all for it. But can you do that and be committed to that and to sports? If you can, go ahead. My son, when he was very early on, wanted to play indoor soccer during basketball season. My wife and I fought him on it, fought him on it, fought him on it, fought him on it. And finally, we relented because they, they were opposite times. So we said, okay. And then one time a soccer game got, got uh, rescheduled and it conflicted with basketball. And we told him, you're going to basketball because that's what's in season. He went ballistic. So after the basketball game, I said, you're done playing soccer. You're done. If that's the way you're going to behave, and that's the way you're going to be. You're done playing soccer in, in, in the winter. We told you one sport. You asked for one sport. You didn't handle it well. You're done. You're going to be committed to one thing. And, um, and I'm not sure he accepted all that well. But the same token is I think there's, I think there's a level of commitment that we need to make sure our players understand. And I think – that's what we, when we, at the Hawks, when we do tryouts at the, after each tryout and then the email to accept the team, we talk a lot about that, that we're going to, we're going to require a lot of you and we're going to ask for a commitment from you. 
and our we and we have a commitment to you, right? Good coaching, quality fields, good tournaments. We're committed to that for you, and, and it's our job to deliver. Your commitment is to us. Now, in the fall and the winter, if you miss things because of other sports, we're okay with that. And my coaches are not allowed to penalize anyone for that. You miss in the spring and the summer, we're going to struggle with that. Right? Now, there's certain nights down here where the, all the public schools have a, um, have, a, have a concert. Everybody's in band has a concert Wednesday night. We got to make sure we know that every year. We don't schedule practice that time. I'm not going to tell a kid he can't do that. That's something we should do. Science on display. Every eighth graders do science on display a certain time of the year. Every count, every county public school does it the same same night. We can't practice. We're not going to tell them you got to miss something educationally for practice. But let us know those things are going on so we, we can work around. So I think there's a level of commitment is being lost on our young people right now, and I think it's not so much sports as it is um, parenting. And I think that needs to change. The end of my career, I was sensing all this and I would say to them, it's not about you. Like you've made a commitment to our school. You've made a commitment to your brothers. You've made a commitment to the staff. As you said, we've made a commitment to you, but it's not about you, right? It's about serving others and, and serving your team. However, when you go into the real world, if you're in business, it'll be about your customers. If you're a doctor, it's going to be about your patients, you know, and they really got the hang of it. And where we, where we had to practice as a staff was, you're not going to come to us and talk about your playing time. That's not how we're going to start. That's about you. You can come, but we're going to talk about how to serve the team. So how are you serving the team? And, and I'm not a tough guy. I'm not going to let you walk out of my office without me ask, asking, how's it going for you? But we're not going to start that way. We're going to start with, how am I serving my brothers? How am I serving my school? So think long and hard before you come to my office and want to talk about your playing time. You know, come talk about LaSalle Lacrosse. Come talk about your brothers who need help in Spanish class. Come talk about your school. And they really got the hang of it. wasn't pretty at first, Coach, but we got there. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think, what I think, and this is what I try to convince my parents of St. Mary's of, is that, you know, they used to say, but he's afraid to talk to you. You know, he doesn't talk to adults well. And I'd say, well, when's it going to be okay for him to talk to adults and talk to coaches? Because in two years, He's going to be in freaking college. And you're not going to be around anymore. Yep. So yeah, let's get him used to it now. And what you just said, and I try to tell parents this too, when he comes into my office, I'm going to ask him, how's school? How's this? How's that? So he gets to know me a little bit and I get to know him a little bit. And then we can talk about the playing time issues or whatever issues he's having. But there's going to be this, this dialogue that's going to be, and he's probably, you know, I'm going to tell him a little bit about, about me that he may not know. And I'm probably learning something about him. And I think those are important conversations to have with coaches that are not on the field. Because guys like you and guys like Marty and guys like me, we're not just interested in just the lacrosse player. We're interested in who are you, the human being. And I think that's really important that if parents allow there's we have a rule in the Hawks. We used to have a rule that if you're playing time, the player has to talk to the coach. And we amended that because we do think we have some young guys that that's too much to ask. And we say is the players to come ask the coach about playing time. You as the parent are allowed to, to come to accompany him in that conversation. But we want the player to have the one that we have the conversation with and it's worked much better. But I think those are things where we get to talk to players and get to know the players on a different level. And you find out about them 
that helps you as a coach and I think helps him as a player too. One of the, one of the greatest, one of the greatest compliments I ever got was at St. Mary's. Some kid got in trouble and he called his mom and like, I talked to Mr. Hogan. I don't want to go in there. I'm afraid I'm not going in there. She goes, get in there. So the kid got in trouble. He did some things and we gave him detentions, whatever it was. And we talked for a while. Who are you? Where are you from? What, you know, what's causing you to be late to school? You know, what's going on in life? Why is it? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? So his mother called me that night and she goes, I hope I can say this on your podcast. She goes, my son came home and said, he's not an asshole after all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's great, coach. You can tell of all your experience, dean of students, coaching, lots of wisdom there. Moving on to our guest roundtable section of today's show with Coach Matt Hogan. Coach Hogan, take us back to Connecticut where you learned the game and what made you fall in love with lacrosse? Uh, that's a good question. So when I was a kid, I'm not that it was that long ago, there weren't, there wasn't really youth sports. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, I was born here in Annapolis when I was five years old. Moved, we moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And actually, my father's a Hopkins grad. But he graduated when, when he had eight kids. So none of us, he never saw a lacrosse game when he was up there. And then we moved to Lancaster and the house next to ours was all for three years was all Franklin Marshall lacrosse players. Sounds and my like older brothers were in high school then. I was in first, second, third grade. Wow. And they used to play with their wooden sticks and that kind of stuff. And we moved to Connecticut to West Hartford. Now I'm in third, third grade. And um, my oldest brother, my second oldest brother, Mike, started playing on the high school team. They started a team. And so I used to go to their practice, and, and I just loved it. I, I don't know what it was. And I was playing football. Basketball was with the middle school. So I, not until I got to middle school that I really played basketball, and I was terrible at it. Um, you know, in, in junior high, we didn't – we only – we had – Cross country, and I ran. We've had basketball, wrestling. I wrestled, and I played. Uh, tried out for a baseball team, got cut. And but so we we didn't have any youth sports. We didn't have any youth lacrosse. And there was a guy uh, uh, from Conard High School, which is an arch rival, who was a great coach. And he used to try to get little kids like myself together each on the weekends. And he, we would play what's called circle lacrosse. Hmm. And what he would do is take a four by four piece of wood have a stand about six feet high and he would attach a basketball hoop on it, but the basketball hoop was perpendicular to the ground. So there's a net hanging on it and he would draw a big circle and then it'd be two teams and you had to stay in the circle and you could score from any side. And what it really taught you was to throw the ball, you could throw the ball to X, the other side of the goal to try to get goals. So I did that. I did that all through probably sixth grade on, fifth grade on. And I used to, and then when I was in uh, seventh and eighth grade, I used to go to high school practices and try to sneak on or in the preseason when the captains ran it, I would sneak on and play. Um, and, you know, plastic sticks were out then. And, and, and when we played uh 500 or, or that yeah. kind of stuff up, up, up at the, up at the uh, church and we weren't allowed to play on the grass. I, I brought a stick with me. I didn't bring a glove. I brought a stick with me, you know, so I'd play baseball with a stick. I'd play 500 with a stick. So that was a lacrosse. And then, um, you know, at Hall, we were pretty good. Now, at that time, it was only Simsbury, Connard, Hall, New Canaan, Wilton, and Greenwich that had varsity teams. And my junior year, hand started. We used to travel, play a lot of, a lot of the public, uh, private schools and that kind of stuff. And uh, we had great coaches 
in, in, in high school. You know, uh, a lot of the football guys coached. Um, the guys didn't know anything about lacrosse, but they were great people. And we had a lot of, we had, we had an awful lot of fun. So how about high school? So high school was all high. We were okay. We made, we used to, um, I played against uh, Mike Pressler in high school. Mm. Um, on his team, they had two guys. One was, uh, one was um, Bob Dylan, And the other guy was, uh, shoot, they had two guys, their team both met, were, were named after singers. It was, it was, we used to make fun of that. Fun of that. My guy, who's my financial advisor now, Kenny Danker, went to Greenwich. We played against him. Um, so we had we had good teams, not great teams. But my love for lacrosse, I was all in. I was all in. You know, I mean, I played football. I swam. I swam. I played football for four years. I swam for four years, and I played lacrosse for four years. And um, everyone knew my first love was lacrosse. I, I was all in and. You know, people used to say, you can't make a living out of this. Why? Well, I was, I was obsessed. Every notebook I had had a cross written on it and everything else. And, and, um, I loved it. I was bitten. I had great coaches. I had good, really good teammates, guys I'm still in touch with and had a great experience with it. Well, they were wrong. You have made a living out of this big time. <laughs> yes, I have. And I, and I, I enjoy, I enjoy bringing it up from time to time, Billy. Now, Springfield College, that's where I ended up playing at D3 school, and I was most excited designing the show to talk about this, one of my kind of favorite topics, because as I said to you earlier, Springfield College has put out some great coaches. I mean, both Myers brothers, along with Peter Toner, there's others, you. Who was the coach? Walk us through the, like this legend who's made a difference in so many guys going out to be great I mean, There's Billy coaches. Glenn at Exeter that was older than I am. So there's, there's, it's always been, I think, a place where – you really learn how to teach and coach there. Uh, my education there was uh, perfect for me. And um, Keith Bugby is the coach there now. He's been there 35 years. We're fundraising for a pavilion to build at the turf field for him in name, in name of his uh, daughter, Lindsay, who passed away after giving childbirth a couple of years ago, who was a coach at Westminster School in uh, Sinsbury, Connecticut. Keith is, they call him the godfather of the cross, New England lacrosse. He, the, the players love this guy. I think he's a father figure. I think he understands lacrosse. Don't get me wrong. But I think he, he has a, he has a culture there that is, is outstanding. And the people we've had some calls to raise money for this uh, pavilion we're going to build for the, for the Bugby family and the guys there, there's reverence there. It's really, really special what Keith has done. And, and one of the things I said in the first call, I said, I'll help any guy that's been someplace for 35 years because I can't keep a job that long. You must be doing something right being in one place 35 years and doing it well. I mean, he hasn't just been there 35 years and, and mingled around. The guys had teams in, in the NCAA tournament and the championship games and the Final Four. He's done a really good job, really good job at a place that I think is not probably really easy to recruit to. So, so he you, doesn't, he doesn't, and it's not just college guys. I mean, there's high school guys all over the place. Yeah, that's what I thought. So then from there, University of Maryland, your first stop? Yeah, so this, this is, maybe this is too long of a story, but, you know, when I, when I first started looking at schools, I was thinking college, I was thinking lacrosse, lacrosse, lacrosse. My father was like, no, no, you're not doing that. So I went to Wesleyan for a visit. And that was the time when you could only have kids on campus one day. I had sneakers, jeans, and a football jersey on. And all the other recruits had penny loafers, you know, 
dress shirts, button down, button down shirts. I go, I don't belong here. And actually the coach is a Springfield guy. So I went to Springfield and then um, I was starting, I came back from the North South game. It was upheld at Hobart college and the world team played Hobart college before us. And after our game was over, I was in the, I was in the, in the um, restroom, you know, taking a shower and stuff coming out. And, um, Steve Stenerson of U.S. Lacrosse was, was next to me in a seat next to me. And Willie Scroggs walked in. And I, there, was a, there was something unique about the coach-player relationship I never had. Willie asked about his parents, asked about his family, and, and, I, and, I, and Steve asked about Willie's family. And then Willie said, I'll see you later on. I'll see you at, at so-and-so. And I thought, that's it. I never had that. And these Division I guys have that. I want to coach. That's what I said. I want to coach. Um, before then, I wanted to be uh, who's the girl? I put this movie on the Love Boat. Remember the Love Boat? I know you guys might be too young for the yeah, Love Boat. No, not me. I got the Love Boat coach. Come who on. was who was the girl that was in charge of activities? The Love Boat. It was Julie. Julie. Yeah. I wanted to be Julie for a while and travel the world and be in charge of you <laughs> I know activities. Look up Julie the Love, from the love boat. boat. I was going to go to Saudi Arabia and work for the oil companies and and teach you know phys ed in Saudi Arabia. I wasn't do anything but going to going a gym and try to convince kids that who didn't want to play gym to participate in the gym. All right, so you know when I told you Brian Doherty took us to left field, dude, you just took us to the love boat and Julie. Yeah, Julie. <laughs> so, Julie McCoy. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So anyhow, I get home and I tell my parents I want to be a college coach. So I start writing letters to all the New England schools we played against, all the coaches that I knew that I met different ways. And I spent days upstairs in our attic type, you know, and a type on a typewriter typing away. Like the third day, my dad came upstairs and, and um, he goes, who are you writing to? And I told him and he said, do you want to be good at this? And I said, yeah. He goes, why don't you write to the best schools? I go, dad, they're not going to hire me. He goes, do you want to be good at this? I said, he goes, then write to the best schools. And I did. And, um, you know, the guy, like, uh, so I wrote to all the best schools. And what's interesting was, they're all the guys that got back to me. All of them returned my, returned my letters. That's awesome. The guys that I knew, the guys I played against from the small division, New England schools, very few of them responded. They re- most of them responded with, we don't have room, blah, blah, blah. Dino Matisic, who was the head coach at um, Maryland at the time, who became um, assistant AD at Towson at University of Maine, UConn. He actually lives in Napa. He's one of my favorite people of all time. Wrote me a letter and said, I can't pay you. I can't find your housing. But if you come down here and you earn responsibility, I'll give it to you. And my brother was a junior or senior at Maryland at the time. I called him up and said, I'm coming. So I packed the duffel bag. I must have flown down. And um, I slept in his sofa for a long, for a long time. And um, Dino, and, one, and the reason why Dino hired me, told me later on, was that he applied. Dino was the head, was the captain of the 1973 or 75 national championship team at Maryland. And the reason he wrote back to me and, and offered me a spot was because he applied to Springfield College and didn't get in. Wow. Because if you got oh, in, I didn't. You must, you, must, you must be good. We got along great, and it was a fantastic experience for me. 
And, and uh, I, I was um, getting up on five o'clock in the morning, washing dishes in a restaurant on, on, on Route 1, then running over to the lacrosse office from 12 to practice and um, hitchhiking. No, I wouldn't probably want to, you know, up to um, beef, beef steak Charlie's. Remember beef steak Charlie's? All you can eat? I was the maitre d' at a beef steak Charlie's. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so when I go through your resume, which we've already touched on almost everything, the one thing that jumps out, right? Not the University of Maryland, that's amazing. Delaware, back to Maryland, Naval Academy. We touched on Penn, St. Mary's. But in that journey, in 87 and 88, head coach Clarkson University. Give me the quick version of how Clarkson falls into that staggering and impressive group of schools. So my first year at Maryland, I was making no money. It's, this is going to be interesting. And, and I went to Delaware and made uh, – me and Dave Wingate split fifteen hundred bucks the stipend. We each made seven fifty. And the next year, I got raised. I got fifteen hundred bucks. And then Dick and Dell asked me to come. I got married. I got married in the fall of '85, and I am coaching University of Maryland, making five thousand dollars. And um, the following year, Hobart assistant job opened up, and Clarkson opened up, and. Uh, Jeff Long interviewed for the job because he was assistant at Virginia then. And somebody called me and said, Matt, you should apply for this job. Jeff Long just turned it down. And I called Jeff Long. I said, Jeff, how can you turn it down? He goes, Matt, I'm from upstate. That's way upstate. So Clarkson is two and a half hours due north of Syracuse. So I interviewed at Clarkson and really liked it. And then I interviewed at um, Hobart the following weekend. Coach Yurk was the head coach there. Mike Hanna was the AD. And uh, at the end of the day, I, I meet with Mike Hanna. And he looked at me. And he and I knew each – I worked their camps before then, I think. And he looked at me and he goes, it may be time for you to call your own timeouts. Great line. And I was like, I think, I was like, I think you're right. <laughs> so – I go back for a second interview because I'm married, right? My wife has never lived outside of Washington, D.C. And um, we land in Syracuse and we, we drive up. And on Route 81, the reflectors on the side of the road, they're like eight feet high because of all the snow. And my wife says, how come the reflectors are so high? I go, they got really big trucks up here, honey. They got really big trucks. <laughs> you know what a break of the news. It's gonna be I couldn't cold. tell her. I could right. not tell her that. So Clarkson was a great experience for me. Fantastic school. All really a high engineer. Like I coached cross country in the fall with 15 engineers and every, or 12 engineers. Every weekend we jumped in a 15 passenger van and drove somewhere up, up in God's country up there to, to run in a meet and have pizza afterwards and come back. And I, I learned so much. The AD there, Bill Flattery, was, was fantastic. Steve Yannick, this was good to me. That guy named Steve War was my assistant coach. He was an all-time great ice hockey player at Clarkson, played in the pros. And he was sort of my equilibrium. You know, every time I got off keel, he smacked me back online. You know, and I started either getting too angry at players or – that kind of stuff. He would always bring me back to reality and say, Hey, stop being this way and be more this way. And he was fantastic for me. And I learned, I learned a ton. My wife actually got her degree up there from Potsdam state and those two. And, and um, in the following years, she's a couple of credits short from university of Maryland. She got that done, but I learned 
more about coaching and handling the administrative things. It was the first time I was in the office really full time. And uh, I, I would never forgive. I would never regret that. The city was tough. It's cold. My wife, the first year, commuted from Potsdam, New York, by a bus to Syracuse, jumped on an airplane, flew to Washington, stayed at her sister's place, to the flight attendant, threw, flew for three or four days, and then reverse commuted back. That was tough. That was yeah. tough. And then, um, but I mean, it, it snowed every single day from the early November to April. My first year, except for Gettysburg, Stockton State, and a school in Virginia, it snowed every single game we played it. So I, I, I will, I will, and I, I still stay in touch with a couple of those guys. This guy Dale Mitchell, who lives in Georgia, comes down to team training every year and just sort of walks around listening to the coaches and, and sucking things up. And Chris McCready's from Buffalo is bringing teams to Naptown this year. Uh, I, I loved that experience. It was really, it was really, really good for me. Really good for me. You tell great stories, coach. And you know what I, I love is that they're stories of a lifetime of lacrosse, of people who came and went, of a wife who stuck by your side. You know, for everybody who's listening, for a parent or a player, this is what a lifetime of commitment means to a game, to your marriage, to your children. And so as I look at you on our virtual screen here, you know, you smile, you mention old names from Clarkson. And I guess I'm not where you are, but I do have a lot of lacrosse behind me and I get it, right? I get when you tell the story that this is my story and this story is intertwined with this game. And I am so grateful. And it comes across on the, in your voice. It comes across on the virtual screen here. And I can't help but have this like smile deep inside as, as I've aged not as far, but in this journey. And I'm grateful for some of the same people. And I'm grateful for your people that I don't even know. Like, I just think it's fun. Chris Hupfeld was on our show in season two, I think, here in Philly. And he was the same way. He just had so much to tell about lacrosse and Team USA and being the general manager of Eagle's Eye. And he had all these pictures to show us back from when Mount Washington played MEB and Eagle's Eye played, you know, Maryland Lacrosse Club. It's just, it's a joy to hear your stories because I think well, they I'm, speak. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not, I'm hoping they're entertaining. I mean, I got, I got, I lived in upstate New York for two years. I got, I got to know all those high school coaches for the rest of my college career too. Yep. You know? Yep. All good people. I'm sure we could do this all night. However, I am going to bring you to the homework because I think they're really good. I'm going to put a shot clock on you. So you ready for this? We're going to get rolling. The first homework in our rapid fire next homework section. Let's go! Is what homework do you have for parents who are listening? <sighs> I would say make sure this is your kid's journey, not yours. And, make, and let them play because they want to play. And if they don't want to play, don't, don't, you can encourage them. You can force them. You can't force them. I don't know how many conversations my wife and I had to get together before and say, okay, look, we want Maggie to do this. We want John to do this. Let's, when we talk to them, but we're not going to tell them they have to, um, especially around colleges. You know, we had to, we had to be, we had to be a single force and sort of uh, move the conversation direction we wanted to. But if that didn't work, then if that's not what they wanted, then, that's, 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 they got to make some decisions at certain times. I think when they're younger, you got to make decisions for them. When they get a little older, they've yeah. got to start making some decisions and allow them to live with those decisions. And if they don't work, then help them, you know, teach them how to get out of, out, out of 
a bad situation, if it's a bad situation, but let them, let them be a parent. And that is, and, and there's a difference between a parent and being a friend. You're not their friend. You're the parent. Yep, and you're, their, you're there to journey. teach them. What's that? It's their journey. It's their journey. And let them, and, and you got to teach right, the difference between right and wrong because they're, they're, they're not going to learn from the friends. I like it. How about for a coach who's listening? What homework do you have for a coach who's listening? Coaches, a lot, um, listen, this is a new thing I'm really, I'm really trying to do a better job with. Um, Eric Capitula from the program who played for the Navy talks a lot about this, is, is communication. And start monitoring, listen to yourself when you're coaching your players. And make sure your message is clear. When, you know, I, I, had, I had a conversation with my coach and he kept on putting the players in the end line because they weren't doing the drill right, or they weren't working hard in practice. And afterwards, what I told them was, this is teaching days. If the practice isn't going right, it's probably the fault of the person who designed the practice. Don't get mad at the players for not doing what you want to do. You designed this wrong. You taught it wrong. You led it wrong, most likely. You got to fix you first. Don't take it out on them. So let monitor, be prepared. If you're not, if you're not prepared, you're done. You know, we don't allow our coaches to design practice doing stick work. We want your practices done before the night before. And uh, so I would say, listen to start listening to yourself and your assistants and be prepared would be the homework that I would have. And last homework for a player who's listening. You can't, you can't ever stop working on your stick work. You, it, once you think your stick work's good enough, you're done. You either get better or you get worse. You never stay the same. And Gary Gate and Paul Gate, when they were at Syracuse, they used to the ball. I heard they used to the ball against the wall for like 40 minutes for every practice. These are two, two of the greatest stick work guys in, in the country. Because two things they did. One, they wanted great stick work. Two is once they, they told someone, I am never going to look at my stick in practice because I make a bad pass. My stick's going to be perfect before practice so I can practice perfect. Their Deion Sanders has a thing on Twitter about how people approach practice now, and they don't approach practice the right way. And I'm 100% behind them. So as a player, you always have to be working to get better. And – I, I am in great awe of the PLL players and what they're doing. I mean, the, the talent on there is, is, is through the roof. But there are some skills those guys are doing offensively right now that little guys can't do yet. A lot of the underhand sidearm and backing away from the goal, you're not ready for that yet. You're not 6'1", 190 pounds yet. When you're a little stronger, you can do that. But let's make you fundamentally sound first. So hit the wall every, as often as you can and always working to get better. It's not about you. It's not about the depth chart. It's about you getting better. Must be something in the water for us Maryland guys because I would drive people crazy saying it's, it's stick work, stick work. I said, you know, if you, you can't be a great-ass hockey player if you can't skate. And it sure helps to be a great basketball player if you're tall. You can be small, but it sure helps when you're tall. You want to be a great lacrosse player? Have a great stick, period. The rest will follow. We mandated two years ago that their winter practice for Hawks had to be 45 minutes of stick work. I hear you. I get it. Stop. 
Stop all the X and O stuff and throw and catch. Yeah. All right. So last section of our homework, what are you currently reading or listening to? Ah, very interesting. So I started coddling of the, hold on. Oh, where is it? Coddling of the American mind. I read it. It's great. And um, every parent should read it because it's completely different than what I thought it was be based on. This is, I thought it was all about parenting young kids. This is about just having a good discussion with, with somebody and having a discussion where there's debate is awesome. My house with eight kids at that dinner, that was one of the coolest things in the world. When you got to argue with mom or dad or the older brother and we were allowed, you know, but there's, we're losing that. And, um, I think that I think I, I read the first, I think two or three chapters, and um, I highlighted something I think on every single page. There's just um, it's very it came from a different perspective than I thought, but I would recommend every parent to read this book. Coach, just from my end, it was a joy to have you on. You know, you made me smile because only my buddies from Baltimore call me Billy. Brian Kelly, you, everybody up here calls me Bill. Of course, my wife calls me Will when she's mad. So it was, it was really kind of refreshing to uh, be called by my old Baltimore, Baltimore on name, Billy. Great. <laughs> he wouldn't let me get away with it either. He smacked nope. me around. I cut everybody off around here. So yeah. Coach Coop. Coach Hogan, just wanted to thank you for your time, your thoughtful conversation with us here on our podcast tonight. It was a pleasure to have you join us, and we wish you all the best with your Hawks teams and your Hogan Lacks events. We're jacked up to work with you more through the three-step organization, and I'm hoping that we can co catch up, exchange some more stories this summer at your Naptown event. How did it go for you? What did you think of the show tonight, Coach? I thought it was good. You know, I, I, I got into my storytelling mode a little bit, and... Uh... I tend to do that, but I thought, I think it's great you guys are doing this. You know, I listened to a few that you did, have done in the past, and I think if young people are, are, are listening, they're probably going to hear a lot of the same message each week. And uh, to go to work, be a good teammate, and you can always get better. I think, think the messages are the same. And the goal, you know, a lot of these kids that play, play youth lacrosse, the goal is to play in college, and I've heard a lot of that discussion. And my only advice then was, Make sure you're playing for the team you're playing for right now, not for the future. Play for who you, whatever decal you wear on the side of your helmet, play for that team. The rest of it will take care of itself. Love it. Great messages to wrap up with. So with that, that is a wrap for episode 12 of season three. From our next offices here in Conchalk in Pennsylvania, this is Coach Coop for our special guest, Matt Hogan, Coach Leahy, our host, and our producer, Justin. Thank you for listening. Good night. All right, Coach, that's a wrap. Thanks. I'm really grateful. It was really fun. <laughs>